Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Something that, you know, people say who study political science is, like, women operate differently Mm -hmm. when they are in charge, right? And one of those ways is by listening. Like, it sounds, (laughs) it almost sounds trite. It's like, duh. But male politicians seem to listen less. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. I've been covering Vice President Harris very closely. She's a favorite target for conservatives. Kamala Harris, where is, where is Kamala she? Harris? Where is Kamala you talk Harris? about the southern border. Yeah, some of She's this is in charge of the southern border. And now, even some of her closest allies admit she needs help fending off incoming fire. There's a difference between having these meetings and actually saying, well, we're going to do something and here's a plan of attack. Does she have one? Wait, is it bonus points if I use the word playbook? Yes. In the headline? Yes. Okay, perfect. All right. This is Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Eugene Daniels. The Kamala Harris politics playbook began during her law school career. Boom. My playbook headline would be Kamala Harris, the convener in chief, question mark. I've watched as she builds relationships with a wide array of Democratic allies, which she could leverage in the administration and a future presidential campaign. My colleague Jesus Rodriguez and I met a few years ago when he was part of a student program here called the Political Journalism Institute. Eugene and I, being both people of color, we obviously bonded very quickly. He's now Big Deal, a contributing editor at our magazine, and in his spare time, much like Harris three decades ago. I also, in my spare time, am a full-time law student at Georgetown Law. (laughs) Pretty impressive. So... What's the evolution that shaped the politician Harris is today? Jesus dug into her time as a law student at UC Hastings to find out. That was where she first decided to go into the system. And I've been covering her from closer up, in the room, in real time. This summer, my colleagues and I broke the story on dysfunction inside the vice president's office. She has strong critics and defenders. Covering this, I've gotten a taste of both. The K-Hive has come after me more than once. (laughs) Yeah, well, me too. So prepare your mentions. Jesus, let's start with Kamala Harris's law school days, okay? Um, A lot of people aren't familiar with this part of her bio. She was the daughter of activists and then became a prosecutor. But what new information did you learn through your reporting? I think the most important thing that I learned about her during her law school years was that that was where she first decided to go into the prosecutor side and try to change things from inside. And that's something that I think every politician wants to do to a certain degree. But the thing that's striking about Kamala Harris is that she went specifically into the prosecution and that she used, she leveraged her law school connections to also become immersed in the California political machine. So Harris has talked about and you you explore in this article kind of wanting to go quote inside the system to change what needs to be changed another quote 
She's depicted herself as kind of this progressive change maker on issues like policing. It is wrong-headed thinking to think that the only way you're going to get communities to be safe is to put more police officers on the street. In immigration. These immigrant families have been further pushed into um, to, to living underground, to living in, 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 in the shadows. That's not reflective of the civil society. But critics of her say she hasn't governed that way, right? That it has not been, and not just as vice president, as a senator as well. Talk to me a little bit about that, that disconnect that people feel like they have. While I was reporting this story, one of the questions that kept coming back up and coming back up about Harris's tenure as vice president in these, you know, what, eight months of the administration is that, you know, she hasn't actually done that much in terms of actual, you know, sort of like granular policy change. In some ways, you know, the talk of the town has been infrastructure or, you know, the budget reconciliation, you know, getting COVID relief and has not been, how are we going to reform the immigration system? What progress can we make on reforming the police? The White House would say that, you know, it's only been eight months. She is the vice president, not the president, right? Like she cannot all of a sudden make police reform the number one issue when he wants it to be infrastructure. But talk about that disconnect that people feel like they see with progressive change maker heads to Washington, D.C., and they feel like they're not seeing those, those actions, even though she like a lot of the things that she's talked about that are pretty regressive. She did, you know, sponsor while she was in the Senate. What the disconnect comes from, and this has been reflected in some of my reporting as well, is that she is now seated at a table, but the table that she's seated at is one that is sort of surrounded by kind of moderates or people who still believe Hmm. that, you know, bipartisanship is, you know, the only way to get things done in Washington. Or incremental change is is Or incremental change, right? And part of this is also going inside the system. Like, that's one of the things that you accept when you become an insider is that, if you like the system that fosters your success, why would you want to bring the entire system down? Hmm. That's just not something really that people who go into you know, systems and who become political insiders do. When we look at policy change and we look at what the actual transformation that she is seeking to achieve versus the reality, we see that a lot of that has just hinged on her representation of communities of color. The idea that you can change, go inside the system and change it, it's not new, right? Like, it's not something new. And I think, you know, people of color, women, people from marginalized communities who get into politics feel like that is the way, one, they need to probably speak, but also the, but also the way that they actually operate because they can't, you know, when Bernie Sanders was saying, give me a revolution, Barack Obama could not have done the exact same thing running for president, right? Like, that is just not... Like, it is not how Barack Obama probably operates. Right. But it also is not something he could do and get the votes of people, right? It comes, it looks and sounds differently coming from a Black woman like Kamala Harris than it does coming out of the mouth of an old white man named Bernie Sanders. What are the things that people think she needs to do to be seen as this progressive firebrand that she kind of, she talks about being? Is it a fair criticism? Is it one that is... It feels like there's a, there's always sexism and racism here. Um, it's hard to tell how much. Certainly. And I think as a law student of color, I certainly understand like the pressure right. to follow sort of like that traditional route and sort of like being confined to that role and being like sort of the catch 22 of like, if I am not making enough change, I'm letting my community down. And also if I 
try to make change, I'm going to be pushed out of the opportunities that may exist for me to advance myself and the representation of my community. So I certainly understand that point of view. I think what some of the folks that I spoke to brought up are, for example, her statement in Guatemala. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Saying to migrants, you know, do not come to the U.S. border. Do not come. Do not come. You'll be sent back. You'll be, uh, we have every intention of enforcing the law. Mm -hmm. And I believe if you come to our border, you will be turned back. I think why that left a sour taste in the mouths of a lot of progressives is because, you know, that's not something that you, a progressive would say necessarily. But but then the argument is, right, like she's the vice president saying something that Biden had said. Don't leave your town or city or community. That um, Secretary Mayorkas had said. They cannot come to the border. The border is closed. That Jinsaki had said from the press, like from the, to me, at the press, while she's standing at the press lectern. It's still a dangerous journey, as we've said many times uh, from here and from many forums before. And uh, we need more time to get the work done to, to ensure that asylum processing is where it should be. Do you think that the fact that she's the vice president, she's being held to like these, this idea of, well, you have to be more progressive when she, you know, like she can't say something that the president doesn't want her to say, right? Like she's just, re- she's repeating the line of the administration. I think that that's totally a fair criticism. And yeah. look at every other vice president in history who has been like a white man, even white men don't get knocked, you know, white men don't get knocked for not doing anything uh, when they've occupied sort of that second spot to the presidency. But when you have a black woman who is in the vice presidency, you know, your actions and like your outlook on the world and on politics is going to get scrutinized even more. But I think what makes Kamala Harris's position even more difficult is that she is sort of still at, a, at an early point in her political career. You know, she's certainly not at the point of Biden's political career, who has been, you know, who has had a storied career in Washington, has sort of like now climbed up the ranks to being the president of the United States, Kamala Harris is still very much trying to carve out a political future for herself. But Eugene, I'm glad you brought that up about, you know, Secretary Saki, you know, responding to you in the White House press room because you covered the <laughs> vice president from a much more uh, granular and do. in-person perspective, um, you know, following her day to day. So I think it's time for me to turn the tables and ask you oh, some God. questions <laughs> ah, okay. about what is going on in Harris' world. <laughs> First of all, I want to talk to you about this sort of, I think, huge story that you wrote that came out the day after my feature in Political Magazine about Harris's sort of political network in D.C. and, you know, the space that she's trying to carve out for herself. Because I think in some ways these things are related. You know, one of my sources said that when she went to law school at UC Hastings in San Francisco, she was very much a friend of Christine Pelosi and that she had had, you know, interactions with the Pelosi family, which obviously has been a giant of California politics for quite some time now. So I wanted to ask you, what's going on behind the scenes here in Washington day to day? Because while we may not hear a lot from the vice president in terms of policy change that she might might be able to enact, you know, she still has a day job. She's still doing something every day. So tell me um, how she's using her convening power to expand her political network. 
this is something that's been really interesting and I, I kind of noticed early on. It's one of those things, you know, as a reporter, you're like, okay, I see this, but is it a story? And like, what can I do with this information? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and no one was writing about it. And so there was something about how she uses what's called the ceremonial office in the executive office building next to the White House. The vice president's ceremonial office is right off the Senate lobby or Senate chamber area. It actually is unique somewhat in the history of rooms in this Capitol because it isn't highly decorated with fresco. Vice presidents have had that for decades and have used it for different reasons. She has sworn in people from that office. She has done remarks with world leaders from that office. But what she does the most is like convene people. And something that I, you know, people say who study political science is like women operate differently when they are in charge, right? And one of those ways is by listening. Like it sounds, <laughs> it almost sounds trite, but male politicians seem to listen less. They mm-hmm. will bring people in, but they won't, like, they don't allow them to talk as much. So what was fascinating about what Harris has done and continues to do that I kept hearing was that people said she would just like open it up. So like I opened this article up with her like leaning her elbows on to the onto the table after the press leaves and tells these women leaders who are there, tell me what you got. Which is like not all of these women leaders say, not a way that they've interacted with people at the White House before, right? There's usually an agenda. Right, exactly. And the agenda for her was like, what's going on? Tell me what you got. And so that part of it is really interesting. So one, what these convenings do, it helps the administration have a little network that they can call on for pressure campaigns when legislation is stalling, voting rights, for example, hearing from all of the different people who are impacted, not just like, and it's not just your usual suspects, like black and brown people, right? It is also like the disabled community who will be impacted by some of these voting restriction laws that are being passed in some of these states. And so what she's doing is helping to create a network that the the administration can activate when necessary to say, hey, one, what's going on, right? Eyes and ears, that's mm-hmm. aspect one. But the other one is like, okay, are you guys going on a march? So how can we elevate that? And so they've created this communication line between the vice president's office and all these other people. They're like tentacles out there into the mm-hmm. world. But a byproduct of this is that she herself, who, though she is the vice president of the United States, doesn't have a huge network that she herself can call on for her own political benefit, Right. Something that her status made very clear is that, you know, the way that she's doing this is not about like, oh, I need to create a political network, but it's a byproduct, right? Like she's able to, at some point, call on all these people that she's helped and helped to cultivate relationships with when she needs to be run for president again, right? Like she didn't have, that was one of the issues when with her last campaign for president is that she didn't have this all these relationships that Joe Biden had, for example, and he had all these really important union relationships, for example, that 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 you need if you're going to be in charge or be at the top of the Democratic ticket. And I think that is going to be really interesting and people should watch that for years, you know, depending on 2024 with Joe Biden or 2028, whether he runs again, is how this will allow her to have a better foothold and handhold if she runs, if and I mean, if, when she runs for president again, right? And as long as, and this is, you know, I talked to a lot of people for this story, but one of Al Gore's former chiefs of staff, he said, this is all great, 
But like, you have to make sure you follow up one and you keep your promises. So they have to be, you know, it's a, it's a fine line to walk of basically appeasing advocates at times. To right. Like, Guys, we're working on it and um, really actually getting something done. I think in particular, we're looking at what is sort of the short term sort of policy wins that will deliver you those like flashy headlines, maybe those bumps in the approval polls versus sort of the long term strategy, the long game of having a direct grassroots connection. And, you know, I want to ask, you know, I'm bringing this up because your team wrote this in Playbook recently about, you know, a rivalry that has been emerging (laughs) between Harris and Pete Buttigieg, who is the Secretary of Transportation. And y'all wrote, it's hard not to compare Buttigieg's current station, owning a legislative priority that will likely succeed, to the burden Harris bears at the administration's point person on two of the most intractable issues on the docket, voting rights and immigration. Um, So what's up with this rivalry between Harris and Buttigieg? (laughs) And what are you hearing from these folks that you're speaking to that Kamala Harris is achieving in her post as vice president, other than, you know, wearing this mantle, this very important mantle of being the first. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's funny because, so I don't think that Harris's office sees it as a robbery. I don't think the administration sees, like, they don't see them as, like, dueling, right? It's kind of like a team of rivals where a bunch of people who, you know, fought a lot, had some issues during the campaign, are back to, like, they're just back to square one. And it's hard, I think, for for normal humans like us who aren't politicians to understand. Like, if I got beef with you, like Cardi B said, I'm going to have beef with you forever. Um, <laughs> like, it's just like, I don't, like, how they get over so easily all of the, the barbs that they throw at each other. Yeah. Um, look at Harris and Biden. Look Biden, at Biden and Obama. Right. You know what I mean? Hillary Clinton and Obama. Like, all of these things and the way that they talk to each other on debate stages, you know, rolls off of their back because they kind of have to do that. With Harris and Buttigieg, they happen to be in there not like they didn't choose each other, right? She talked to to Biden about every single person for the cabinet. I have no indication that she was like, no, I hate him. That's more of a Amy Klobuchar and Buttigieg have a yeah. more intense <laughs> rivalry, I think, than anyone else. She might have said no. But I think it's more of like a perception thing, right? Because at the end of the day, these two people are young and are going to run for president again, obviously. They're likely going to run against each other. Obviously. And so Buttigieg is lucky in that the thing that he is in charge of, quote unquote, like because he's a secretary of transportation, is a priority of the administration that has bipartisan support. Right. And so he was doing a lot of interviews. He's been out front a lot um, for the administration on this issue, going on Fox News even to talk to them about this. And they lean on him quite a bit. Harris was not doing all of that. Because she has all of these other issues that she's dealing with and she's the vice president and it kind of ups the, ups the ante when you have the vice president go on Fox News, which she has not done, or go on MSNBC or CNN and push something. They have been very clear that she has been making calls and has talked to members of Congress about infrastructure, but she is focusing on these really tough issues. But I think something that is really interesting is that Kamala Harris picked voting rights. Right. Like Biden didn't give her voting rights. She wanted to tackle voting rights, an issue that she knows because she's obviously very smart and very astute. She knows doesn't have a lot of support in Congress, can't pass muster in this. And by, by that, I mean from Republicans cannot pass in the Senate because you need 10 Republicans to do so because of the filibuster. But 
Something that I've been, has been said to me over and over from allies of hers is that, one, they're always like, if you count out Kamala Harris, you're stupid. You know, so she has proven people wrong over and mm. over again in her career, obviously, or she wouldn't be where she is. And most importantly, with voting rights and the migrant crisis, if she just changes it a little bit or if she is seen as having a little impact, a small impact, like the issues are, have been so stuck that it's going to be seen as a for huge, so quote unquote, win for her. Right, exactly. And so it's like, okay, these, especially when it comes to dealing with the Northern Triangle countries and, and migrants, even if she makes it like a little better, like that's so much better than it's been in that other men, like President Biden, have tried to tackle it and they couldn't. So it's like, it's high risk, high reward. Mm. I also think that one of the problems with being vice president for anyone is that you own everything that happens, right? This happened to Joe Biden during the primary where people would ask him, you know, what about the, you guys, you know, deported 2 million immigrants during the Obama administration. You guys spied on reporters mm. and wanted their information, like all of these things. And what he eventually came to was like, I was the vice president, not the president. And so it is going to always be hard for her and hard for any vice president to kind of differentiate themselves at some point. Whereas Buttigieg can be like, I was just doing transportation, right? So mm -hmm. that the rivalry isn't one that they have created themselves. It's kind of media created. But it is something that the two of them are going to have to haggle with at some point when they're running for office again. Because the two of them will. You look at Afghanistan, for example, people are going to ask her, like, what did you say behind closed doors? That we don't know. But it seems at this point that she agreed with the president for the most part on those, on that decision and the process in which it happened. And so the mantle of the first is one thing, but the other, you know, she, she can't pass legislation. She can't, you know, speak out of turn because she's the vice president. So it's always hard to look at what a vice president has quote unquote accomplished because you can't separate the administration from the vice president, they are one and the same, right? When you say the White House, that includes the vice president, right? <laughs> she just has a different office. Right. I can't let you go without asking you about, you know, one of the biggest stories that you've broken about Kamala Harris, and that's, you know, that her staff may not be her biggest fans. Um, you know, you interviewed <laughs> 22 former and current staff for this story. What were some of the most surprising things that you found? And tell me how much of this is an unsavory boss versus, you know, this is a culture, this is a, a problem that has followed her for a while. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, <laughs> it wasn't that they hate her or they're not fans of her. It was that they had issues with the chief of staff, who is another Black woman. And that is, I think, an important distinction that a lot of people were making when we were speaking with them. Because what was fascinating is that in one breath, you'd be talking to someone who brought this up to us. Like, right, this wasn't a story that we were, like, chasing me, Christopher Catalago, and Daniel Littman. Like, we weren't like, what's happening and who hates who? Like, that is not, like, that people are under the, the illusion, I think, a lot of the times is that reporters are sitting back wondering how we can take people down. And I'm sure there are people that do that. It's not the way that I operate or people on our team operate. And, you know, we were hearing that people felt like the office wasn't being run correctly. Mm. And at first you hear one or two people, people complain a lot at the White House. People complain a lot in politics. Some of that is like people trying to, if things go wrong, trying to like save their own asses or trying to look a certain way. So you always have to be like, okay, what's, what's the game here? Right. I think 
one of the things I was most surprised by. One is the the willingness for so many people to talk. I think because, you know, this isn't going to help you guys in what you're doing, right? Like, it's like, I think some of the people said that, you know, this needs to get out there, then maybe things will get better. And to be fair, I haven't heard about a complaint since, so maybe that worked. <laughs> so, like, maybe something changed. But it caused a headache for mm-hmm. the vice president's office for weeks. That's not a pat on the back. That's just like, a, that's just what happened. And this is what defenders would say. People are not used to Black women being in power. Mm. The chief of staff, Tina Florno, is also a Black woman who is in power. And so how people accept information from a Black woman telling them to do something doesn't always feel the same to them because of how we think about power and who's supposed to have it. Yeah. That aspect of it kind of got lost in the shuffle. Mm. And then something that the, you know, the office said after, because they didn't tell us when we wrote the story, but after when I've talked to sources in the office, um, senior aides, is that, you know, this is also because of COVID. Like, they haven't seen each other. And so a Zoom discussion goes differently than when you're in the same room. Like, they just don't know each other. And so that's one of the aspects that's really interesting because it also matters to, like, it's not just like gossip. If an office is having issues, that means that it could possibly be affecting the work that they're doing, right? Right. I want to ask you about the K-Hive because, um, (laughs) you know, we're getting... You're going to get me in trouble, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, well, me too. (laughs) I wanted to ask you, what is the hashtag K-Hive like, when did you first hear about it? What does the blowback look like? Have you deleted your Twitter app? Tell me what's going on <laughs> in Eugene's iPhone. I, I need to delete my Twitter app. Um, so I've obviously, I heard about the, I knew about the K-Hive. We all kind of know about like the Bernie bros and the K-Hive and like the I'm with her crowd for Hillary Clinton. Like all of these people who are st- like stands, right? Like not fans, stands. Like they, the person can't do anything. Like I'm a Beyonce stand. There's nothing that human can do wrong. I don't care. You, like, get over it. Yeah, Anything right. you say to me, like, I, if she, like, beat somebody up on the street, I'd be like, you know what? They probably deserve it. Well, you know, like, it's like yeah, those right. where you what make, it, where you make it, Exactly. You, like, make excuses for your person. And I think that is what a lot of these groups do. But also, you know, a lot of these people are, like, normal Americans who see themselves for the first time in Kamala Harris. And so... That brings with it a lot of passion. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, the the defense is is really intense. You know, this story we did on the office, like I just like literally just like did not look at my phone for a while because then you start getting caught on all types of names, and they they also don't let it go. Then they've been talking about it since then, no matter what story I write. And I think just like the idea of groups of people who jump on you when things happen. One, I think one thing that reporters. I'm making in trouble with this with some reported friends. Like, political reporters are sometimes like, I am above reproach. Don't ask me nothing. Don't, like, I don't want to hear from you. Don't, like, I don't care what the public says about my stories. I don't fully agree with that. Yeah. I think that it is important for us to hear if people felt like we missed the mark, if there's a different way we can look at things. I don't think that changes your reporting, but it is something to keep in mind. Like, if I write something and no one likes it, maybe we, maybe I missed something. Maybe now, that's right? a clue, right. Exactly. Maybe that's a bit of a clue. So I think that it's something that we should keep in account. I think these groups can be helpful in that sense when you can dig through the people who are just like stands, right? Like when you can dig through and find actual criticisms of your work. Like, I'm fine with that. 
Um, the name calling is insane. And I, there's like nothing I can do about that. Like whatever. Like I've been called an Uncle Tom. I've been called mm. a, you know, misogynist, which is someone who like hates God. black women, which is not true. I'm literally at my grandmother's house and a home full of <laughs> black women in the right. South. Like it's just like all of these like things that are not super helpful. Um, cause if you have an issue with my story, let me know. So the blowback is intense and it feels sometimes like you're like drowning in it. But I think the thing that I constantly try to remind myself is like, if I can look at my story and say, all of this is true. All of this information in here was given to me and I've reported it out and asked questions about that information and poked holes in every argument, poked holes in my own uh, misconceptions or, or, or the way that I think about people and things, then I'm proud of the story. And I think just because there's backlash doesn't mean you did the wrong thing. Sometimes it means you did the right thing, right? It's right. Like, like, it's, like that is, that's one of the weirder aspects of social media right now that makes reporting a little bit more difficult is that I think there are reporters who are scared to write stories and criticize politicians because of the backlash, which I think is dangerous. As the world is changing and as the politicians are looking different than they ever have and have different backgrounds than they ever had, a good reporter is going to keep in mind what that background means to the story and what that means to how people see this person. And it is objective to say that Black women have been unfairly characterized by the media for decades, for centuries in this country, right? So it's like, (laughs) what are the ways that we get rid of those tropes and really have an honest conversation about who this person is, what their policies are, what that looks like, et cetera, et cetera. And not only, you know, an objective fact to say that, but also makes their story incomplete not to say it. Right, 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 right. right. I think that's really important is like, do you want your story to get a lot of clicks or do you want your story to be accurate? And like something I often think about, maybe it's too much, but like thinking about, okay, in 10 years, 20 years, someone's going to look at our stories, Jesus, and be like, this is what the, how the media thought about this first black, this black woman who was, you know, who's history making. Like, that's a lot of pressure, first of all. Mm-hmm. So I probably should stop thinking about it so much. <laughs> but it is a, it's a good reminder of like the stakes of this, right? Like we have really cool damn jobs. And so it's really important to remind yourself of the stakes. Like we are a part of how history will look at and judge these people in office right now. And it is our job to be honest and be critical and not believe everything that everyone says up front and do our own reporting and look into it, but also to be really fair and take into account all of the history of this this country and and this world. Absolutely, Eugene. And that's a flawless answer, uh, given your Beyonce stand stand status. Beyonce, yes, literally. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Thank you, Eugene. Great catching up with you after so long. And that's our show. Our producers are Adrian Hurst and Annie Reese. Our senior producers, Jenny Ament. And our executive producers, Irene Noguchi. Mike Zappler is Playbook's daily newsletter editor. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. We'll take you behind the scenes of DC again next week on another Playbook Deep Dive. I'm Eugene Daniels. Thanks for listening. Oh, and before you go, Jesus has a few questions. Jesus, take it away. Hi there, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It's Jesus Rodriguez. I hope you're listening. 
I've been reading about you, and basically every profile calls you the legal architect behind DACA. I have a couple of questions for you about what it was like to be the lawyer behind this policy that has impacted so many. And also, any word on how long TPS applications for Venezuela will take? You announced the policy back in March, and I've heard from some people they still haven't gotten it. I'm asking for myself and, like, hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans. I'm at JesusRodriguezAB at gmail.com. I hope to hear back from you soon.